The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study, let's uh, make sure we're we're in fellowship while the sound crew's jumping around. They're like ants back there. Something doesn't go on, the speakers don't come on, and they just formicate like ants everywhere, just like kicking a fire ant bed in the hill country, just everywhere. Okay, we'll have a few moments. That's a little loud. Turn down just a little bit. Can you all hear me on the back row? Is that okay? All right. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and I'll open in prayer. Father, we thank you so much that your grace is so magnificent that that you have provided everything for us. You've provided us a perfect salvation. You've provided for us a tremendous spiritual life. You've given us your your word, there's so much that you've given for us and it, given to us, and it's not dependent on who we are or what we've done, but it's all based on your character, your love, your righteousness. Father, we just appreciate so much all that we have been given, and we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study this evening, that as we continue our study through Genesis, that this might not only be a challenge, but an encouragement to us in our own spiritual life and growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. Okay, now where are we in Genesis? We've been going through the life of Jacob, and we have seen that Jacob has just manifested the character of his name, that he's the heel grabber, the deceiver, the manipulator. He's the one who is going to make sure he gets what God promised him to get. That's his. That's the flaw of his sin nature. That's his weakness. Now, every one of us has our own areas of weakness in the sin nature where we are so prone to sin, where we, it's just the easiest thing in the world for us to fall into some uh, form of a of a sin pattern, but that was his. And so God, for Jacob, as he does for each of us, designs a specific set of circumstances in life that he took Jacob through that particularly grind on that area of his sin nature. And for and we really see this in Jacob. Now, a lot of people may not appreciate that yet in their life, that the tests that God brings into your life are designed to deal with the sins of your sin nature. And so you may not you may think, well, Lord, I just wish you'd give me X test. I heard somebody the other day said, the reason God won't ever let me win the lottery 
is because he knows I'd pass the test and I'd give it to missions and I'd do this with it and that with it. So I'm not even going to try to buy the lottery ticket. So, But God tailor-makes each test just for us. So as we go through these tests, we need to realize and think a little more cognitively about the fact, or a little more conscientiously about the fact that this test is designed to teach each of us, teach me, how to apply doctrine in this situation because I keep blowing it in this same particular area. And with Jacob, it was that desire to control that even when he knew that God was going to bless him, he was promised the blessing that the elder would serve the younger that was uh, prophesied by God at his birth. The birthright was going to be his. The blessing was going to be his. But what does he do? He has to get in there and he has to try to manipulate it and control it and try to get it himself. And so we studied the, the, the early years where we, he is manipulating the situation, deceiving his brother, taking advantage of his brother. And I've been reflecting on this a little bit this week because we see the reconciliation in chapter 33. And we don't take enough time, to, I think, in the early years to think about these boys and their relationship. They grew up together. They're twins. I don't know a lot about twins, but I do know that twins have a special bond. Now, they weren't identical twins. That's obvious because one of them is hairy. One of them isn't. Uh, one of them likes it. They, they don't manifest the characteristics of identical twins. They're fraternal twins. But there's a closeness there, and they seem to have had uh, a close relationship growing up, at least by the way uh, Esau responds to Jacob's return in this particular chapter. So we, we miss out on that. We don't see that. God doesn't open the door on that in those early chapters. All we see is a very brief look at their birth and then Jacob taking advantage of Esau first in the uh, selling the uh, buying his, his his birthright with the with the mess of pottage with the lentil soup and then deceiving uh, Isaac his father into giving him the blessing we move through all that and we see Esau is just breathing fire is just angry at Jacob and perhaps there was a whole series of of events in their life where Jacob constantly took advantage of Esau. And so now Esau is just breathing fire. Isaac has to flee. He's not just made him mad. He knows that if he stays around, that he'll make good on his threats. Esau is deeply angry at him and wants to murder him. So they've had this separation that's gone on for 20 years, and God used that 20-year separation as years to test Jacob and to bring maturity into his life. Now, we're not told what's going on with Esau during this time. We can infer a couple of things because of the way Esau responds to Jacob when Jacob returns. He's not bitter anymore. And remember, Esau becomes the picture postcard for bitterness in the New Testament. When we get over to Hebrews, let's just look at that a minute. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, no, excuse me, Hebrews 12, 12, 16. 
we're war- there's a warning that begins in 14. Let's go back there and pick up the context. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, this isn't a commentary on Esau's whole life. This is a commentary on one thing that he did, his, the low esteem, the low value he placed upon his, his, um, his birthright. And afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no place for repentance, though he sought diligently with tears. This is the picture we see. It's, it's uh, this, the bitterness, resentment, hatred, anger, the way he treated his inheritance lightly, all of that is wrapped up in Esau. And yet, by the time we come to see the mature Esau in chapter 33, he, is, he doesn't picture, personify any of that anymore. That was what happened in those, surrounding those early instances 20 years earlier. Now, he harbors no resentment whatsoever towards Jacob. He's glad to see him. In fact, he's, he, he seems to be much more enthusiastic about seeing Jacob than Jacob is to see Esau. And there's, he has no resentment, no bitterness. He's just happy. He just throws his arms around him and they weep together. It shows that Jacob is glad to see him. But, but there, there's a, a, this openness. There's, a, there's a, almost a winsomeness to Esau in this chapter. You just look at him and he's so glad to see his brother, invites him home. He's very open. There's no bitterness, resentment, hostility, mental attitude, sin. There, there's genuine and true forgiveness that's taken place uh, by chapter 33 in his life. Jacob, on the other hand, so we don't know what brought that about in the life of Esau. He's matured. God's blessed him. He has uh, tremendous uh, wealth now. God has provided him with abundance, with physical, material prosperity. Jacob, we know, went through a lot of tests. The focus is on Jacob because Jacob is in the line of the seed. And Jacob goes through all these tests living with Laban, who is just a mirror image. He's a carbon copy of of, uh, Jacob's sin nature. And so for 20 years he has to deal with this, this relative who's constantly taking advantage of him, just as he took advantage of Esau. And uh, so during that time, he learns to trust God, and ultimately God fulfills his promise they gave him at Bethel as he was leaving the land to protect him, provide prosperity for him, and to bring him back to the land. So now he's blessed with abundance, and we see him coming back into the land in chapter 32. And brief review, he as he's returning in 32.1, God gave him a vision of the two camps, the Mahanaim. And it's the intersection of the invisible, angelic world and the camp of the angelic army on the one side and then the earthly realm. And within that, Jacob is again reminded. Notice how many times God's reminding Jacob of how he's going to protect him, provide for him, and bless him. And yet Jacob is so hesitant to fully trust and relax in God's provision. And after he has that vision of the two camps again, he still is fearful. He hears about Jacob, uh, Esau coming with the 400 men, 
and he is scared to death and he's full of fear and he's distressed and he's full of uh, just terrorized because uh, Esau is coming with this army of 400 and so he thinks that he's going to kill him and, and, and destroy him and his family. But that fear drives him to divine dependence and we looked at that prayer last time in chapter 32 beginning in verse 9 where he calls upon God calls him God of my father Abraham, my father Isaac, reminding him of the Abrahamic covenant, confesses his sin, his unworthiness to God, and calls upon God to deliver him and reminds God about his promise. It's a perfect example of the faith rest drill. But then as soon as he gets done, we saw that he does the same thing many of us do. Five seconds after we claim a promise, cast our cares upon the Lord, we immediately decide to help God. And so Esau, I mean, Jacob is going to help God, and he says, well, God's going to take care of things, but I'm going to help things just in case he misses something. And he decides he's going to send all of these bribes, these gifts, uh, to Esau in order to uh, placate his brother with these various gifts. And all he does is just, he misses out on the blessing. That's what we miss, is that by not trusting God, we may not miss out on getting what God's going to give us, but we miss out on a lot of, a lot of the uh, extra frills that go along with it because we don't fully trust God to work through the whole situation. So Jacob attempts to placate his brother through, the, through these gifts, and then we have the episode where he wrestles with the angel of the Lord at Peniel. And the wrestling is a physical, historical event that took place throughout the night. It ends with the angel of the Lord having to uh, strike him on the hip, which cripples him. And for the rest of the life, he's going to carry this mark with him as he has a perpetual limp. And the wrestling itself, though it's a physical, historical event, it's designed to depict the spiritual struggle that goes on in every believer's life as to whether we're going to submit to divine authority or just run our life on our own, try to manipulate the situation and do it our way or truly relax uh, with God. And with, excuse me a minute, with um, Jacob, he finally, when there's this crippling, it is a... Symbol. I mean, it truly happens, but it's uh, symbolic of the fact that God has to break our will many times in order to get us to truly submit to him. He has to get us to that point where whatever it takes, we're going to quit doing, quit relying on ourselves. We're going to quit having a hold card uh, just in case God doesn't pull things off. We're going to help him out and to get to that point where we trust God. And this is what happens. This is why God renames Jacob. And that is that is the turning point in his life. He has gone through a lot of spiritual growth and a lot of maturation during these 20 years. But now, finally, here at, uh, at Peniel, there, there, it's like, I hate to use the word breakthrough, but it's it, finally things come together and he realizes that he truly needs to rely upon God and God is going to provide for him and is he is truly a different person after that this is not when Jacob gets saved that's already happened this is when he reaches a level of spiritual adulthood or spiritual maturity because he comes to truly 
understand grace and to trust God. But even though we reach spiritual maturity, there are still failures and flaws from our sin nature that are going to continue to pester us. And we see that in a very real, real life sense in chapter, uh, chapter 33. What is emphasized here is that God has to uh, humble Jacob. And we have two passages in the New Testament that emphasize this. First Peter 5.5, 5, which uh, concludes with a quote from the Old Testament. From, uh, it's a summation of a verse in, in Proverbs. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that word in the Greek for resist is antitasso. Uh, and antitasso has the idea of lining up a, a, a rank of soldiers or a phalanx to do battle against another group. And it was used in a military sense primarily in classical Greek. And by the Koine period, it came to... Uh, mean primarily the idea of opposition, hostility to something, resistance to something. So it's an extremely strong word to the opposition that God has against the arrogant. But in contrast, he gives grace to the humble. So one of the things that has to happen as we grow spiritually is, and I think this doesn't happen one time, there's no one-shot anything in the Christian life, what happens is we go through series where God teaches us humility, where we, we get a little full of ourselves at this point or that point in life and, and a little too self-reliant, and then God, as it were, pulls the rug out from under us in order to get our attention. And again, we have to realize we are completely and totally dependent upon God uh, for everything. James 4.6 reiterates the same uh, uh, restates the same quote from the Old Testament, but in a slightly different context. There, James writes, But he, that is God, gives more grace, and it indicates that there's these successive stages of grace reception in the spiritual life where there's saving grace, there's logistical grace, there, there's an accumulation, there's more and more grace that God gives as we walk in obedience and grow spiritually, just as... Jesus said in John 14 that as we uh, obey the Father, He reveals Himself to us. There's a greater, as we grow, we get a greater and greater uh, understanding of who God is. Not revelation in the sense of special revelation, but a greater appreciation and understanding of who God is in His plan and our spiritual growth. So it's that successive growth that goes on here. This is what we see in the life of Jacob, these successive stages of spiritual growth. But even when we have had times when we uh, do things right and do things well, what often happens is that we come to the next test and we don't necessarily pass it 100%. So now we come to chapter 33. It takes place immediately after the events of Peniel when God when Jacob meets God face to face and verse 1 of 33 says now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked and the Hebrew narrative it's 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 immediate it's right after this night of wrestling with the angel the next morning he wakes up and looks up and there's Esau coming with his 
army of 400 servants. And, and Jacob, has, even though he's trusting God, God has just promised uh, to take care of him. God has just uh, promised him and is going to, going to uh, uh, take care of him. Jacob has to now uh, make decisions on the basis of that, of that promise. So here we see Jacob is a man who's just had this face-to-face encounter with God. This isn't just some religious experience. This is a true face-to-face encounter with the living God. But he is, on the other hand, still uncertain about just how Esau is going to react. Just what is Esau going to do? As soon as he gets through with this encounter with God, he looks up. There's Esau coming with 400. The last time he saw Esau, Esau was about ready to cut his head off. And so, once again, he uh, starts to operate on the fear and anxiety that he had before. Now, commentators, expositors of this passage, view and interpret this passage differently. You tend to have two extremes, and I find this to be true in a lot of situations in Scripture, because you have uh, people just tend to always approach believers from an idealistic framework is either they they never sin or they're not going to sin or they're just completely uh, out there in rebellion. And so that's that's true about how they understand Jacob. Some people see Jacob here failing to trust God at all. He just fails completely and he falls back on his uh, strategies of manipulation and control in this situation and then others see Jacob as having had a total transformation as I read through this I see that both are true that he's had a major transformation and there's a real indication of real spiritual growth here but he's still a sinner he still has weaknesses and flaws and that's what's true for most of us where we do real well but we realize at times that that even though we did pretty good we, we only did 93% we didn't do 100% and there's still areas within the success where we were, where we were failures, and that's all part of being human, and and growing. So, Jacob has this development, and throughout this chapter, we see an emphasis on grace. I don't know if I have the, uh, I don't have a slide up for it yet, but we'll see the word graciously in verse five in the English. Find favor in verse eight. Find favor in verse ten. And again, favor in verse 15, all translate the Hebrew word hen, which means grace. So grace is a dominant idea in this passage. So Jacob clearly understands the grace of God and the provision of God. But he also understands, and I think he believes that God is going to protect him, but that doesn't mean he should be stupid either. So as Esau is approaching... He takes a wise step. He's not sure what he's going to do. But in verse 1 we read, So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. That would be Zilpah and Bilhah. And he put the maidservants, that's Zilpah and Bilhah and their children, in front. He put Leah and her children toward the back. And then at the very back, at the most protected position, the favored position, he puts Rachel and Joseph. If anything's going to happen, if Esau is going to attack, he wants to make sure that Rachel and and Joseph are the mo- in the most protected position. 
Now, the Jacob of chapter 32, remember, sent all these gifts ahead, and he stayed behind. But this is where we see the change, is that Jacob lines the family out so that he's got Rachel and Joseph in the most protected position, and then he moves out in front of everybody. And instead of protecting himself, he puts himself in the most vulnerable position of all, and he goes out in front of them. And and verse 3 reads, Then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came to his brother. Now this is a very interesting scenario. This bowing down episode is typical of how a servant would approach royalty in a court. They would show extreme subservience. The person who is in in submission would bow down seven times uh, to the ground before approaching a king or someone of royalty. And so he's he's acting that way. He's not sure what Esau's going to do yet. So he bows down. He puts himself in a position of real humility because remember Esau is the one who is the, the, the leader now. He's the one who received the blessing and the inheritance. The older is supposed to serve the younger. He knows this. He has the right to assert his position of authority and what he does is he puts himself rather in a position of humility and subservience to Esau demonstrating his humility that there has been a genuine change in him he recognizes his humility this is seen as he begins to explain to Esau later on all that he has in verse 5 he says after Esau asks him who who's who are all these people with you Jacob says the children whom God has graciously given your servant he recognizes that everything he has has come from God. He didn't do anything to earn or deserve anything that he has. It shows a genuine sense of humility here. And even though he is the Lord of Esau, and since he he is the heir, he reveals that he does not wish to lord it over Esau to take advantage of this position over Esau, and he exhibits genuine humility. Now, what is humility? This is one of those things that that people really have a hard time understanding. Humility is a primary virtue in the spiritual life, so let's define it. First of all, humility in the Scripture is always contrasted with pride, arrogance, and self-absorption. Too often people think that humility is some sort of uh, self-deprecation, it's low self-esteem, it's somebody who gets walked all over by somebody else, never asserts themselves in any situation. They're just sort of meek and mild and, and uh, are, they're taken advantage of a lot. But that is not the biblical concept of humility. The biblical concept of humility is authority orientation. Humility is a biblical perception of who one is, understanding who you are properly in the plan of God and who you are in the chain of command, so to speak, and its orientation to divine authority. And that's at the core of being able to advance in any circumstance in Scripture. I don't want to take the time, but... You ought to read Ephesians 5 sometime, beginning with the passage, the command to submit to one another. Husbands are to love your wives, how? 
as Christ loved the church. Not because your wife is beautiful, not because she's sexy, not because she uh, loves and adores you and worships the ground you walk on, not because she uh, fulfills your every wish or she's a good cook or does what you want her to do. None of those things. It's not based at all on who she is or what she does. Even when she's uh, carnal, even when she's rebellious, even when she's hard to get along with, at all those those bad times, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's the model. You remove your spouse out of the equation. It's never the based on the other person. And wives, you're supposed to submit to your husband not because he's kind, wise, gracious, loyal, gentle, and humble. But you submit to your husband even when he's none of those things as unto the Lord. You submit to his authority as it, because you're submitting to the authority of the Lord. And servants are to obey your masters. Why? As unto the Lord. See, you're not working for whoever your employer is. You're working for the Lord. You're not being obedient to your husband. You're being obedient to the Lord. You're loving your wife not because of who and what she is, but because of who God is and what Christ did for you. That just changes your whole perspective and gets us out of this self-absorbed, notion so that when our feelings get hurt or get stepped on or the other person isn't responding to us the way we would like, the way we want, it gives us a chance to get out of this subjective self-absorption and into a position of of objectivity and genuine humility because we need to be rightly related to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So humility is a biblical perception of who we are within whatever structure we're in. And everybody's in an authority structure at work. You're in an authority structure at home. You're in an authority structure at school. You're in an authority structure in the military. Nobody's without an authority structure unless you're homeless and living under a bridge somewhere, but then you're still under the authority of the government. And that doesn't end until we die or the rapture. So humility is a biblical perception of who one is and orientation to God's authority. We're told in the Old Testament that Moses is the most humble man in the Old Testament. Why? And here's this guy who's taken three million rebellious Jews through the wilderness for 38 years because they refused to trust Christ. This is not an easy thing to do. I'm not sure that I would want to take 50 or 60 of you through the wilderness for 38 years. We'd all probably get pretty tired of each other and get on one another's nerves. And just think about that, 38 years with all of these Jews are rebellious. And they were rebellious. They constantly chafed at any authority that God set over them. And yet Moses is called the meekest, most humble man in the world. And the reason is because he's oriented completely to the authority of God. He was a strong leader. You look at some of the things that happened and how he handled the Jews in those rebellious situations when they're challenging the leadership of, uh, of Aaron and when they're challenging his leadership and a number of other places. And he goes to the Lord over and over again because he understood who he was as a leader and that, number one, that meant he was under the authority of God. The New Testament picture of humility is given in Philippians 2, 5-11, which is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Philippians 2, 5-11 gives us that picture of humility in the person of Jesus Christ. Whenever we think about these concepts of humility or meekness or honesty or whatever the virtue is that comes to your mind, don't be like a typical Greek and think about that in some sort of abstract sense that we generate out of our culture. The Bible grounds every one of these these virtues, these abstract concepts in the person of Christ in an event in his life. So that gives us a, a solid picture of what this, these, what this virtue means. Philippians, I'm not going to go through the exegete the passage, just hit the high points. The Philippians are being commanded by Paul in the first part of Philippians 2 to have a mentality an attitude of genuine humility toward one another. It's a very practical passage. He says, um, there we go. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, and these are uh, first-class conditions with the uh, almost the idea of sense, not quite, but almost. It's a very strong statement. Sense or if and there is consolation Christ, if there is the comfort of love, if there is the fellowship of the Spirit, and if and there is affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That's a definition of humility. You can only get that way if you're all subordinate to the authority of God. Then verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, that's arrogance but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than yourself that's the principle I just stated having a biblical perception of who you are that none of us is ultimately any, any created uh, with any degree of uh, special quality or character above anybody else we're all uh, fallen sinners equally in need of salvation then he comes to the example. And I've just always loved this because here you have one of these great practical passages in the first four verses that a lot of people just love to listen to. Oh, that's so practical. Let's learn how to be humble. And then you get one of the heaviest doctrinal passages in all of the Bible in the next six verses to explain the example of, how to, uh, of the basis for the practical uh, admonitions of the first four verses. So, so it tells you, you you're not going to understand how to be truly humble and, and oriented to grace unless you understand who Jesus Christ is in hypostatic union. You can't do it. Without it, you've got a false view of humility. Philippians 2.5, let this mind or this mentality, this mental attitude that he's just been talking about, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, and the idea there is he existed eternally as div- in, in full deity, divine essence. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He created all things. It is by him that all things exist and continue to exist. He is the creator, the sustainer of the universe. And, the, and this is who he is before the incarnation. But he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's not a great translation from the New King James. The idea is he didn't consider it something to be grasped after or held onto to be equal to God. The, the imagery in the background here is Adam and Eve 
going, grabbing after the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in order to be like God. That's a temptation. God didn't want you to eat that fruit, Satan said. If you do, you're going to be just like him. He didn't want that. So they grabbed after it. They wanted to be like God. Well, here you have Jesus who is full deity, and he's not going to assert his eternal divine prerogative as God to be God. And in contrast, he says, But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, the physical body of a human being in the form of a slave, coming in the likeness, the schemati of man, man, so that he becomes true humanity. That's what verse 7 is saying. And he's found in appearance as a man. And what happens next? That's the key part of this. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So what is humility? Humility is orientation to divine authority. He, he humbled himself by being obedient to the Father's plan and the Father's will, even to the point of death, and that death on the cross was the most horrible thing that he could possibly go through in any conceivable world where he who knew no sin was made sin for us. That is the biblical example of humility. When you think of humility, I think you ought to think of two images. The first image is of Jesus Christ picking up the, uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the money changers in the temple and physically, bodily throwing them out of the temple. Because that is a picture of strength. And he was in obedience to the Father's authority. And the other picture that you ought to have of humility is Jesus Christ standing before Pilate and not saying a word. He doesn't say, I'm God. And you've just blasphemed against me and you're vaporized. He doesn't zap him right there. He doesn't just... just you know, flick his finger at him and watch him bounce off the walls. I mean, he could have done any of those things. He is silent. As a lamb before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Then he is beaten by Roman soldiers. These creatures that he's created take him out and whip him and beat him mercilessly. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He is the God of the universe by whose power they breathe from minute to minute. He sustains them in life while they are beating him to a bloody pulp. And then they put him on the cross. That's submission to authority. That's humility. That's what humility is. That's the picture we need to have. Now this is what Jacob is in the process of learning. And he has learned that humility. That humility means you orient yourself to God's plan. God's plan is to bless Jacob God's way, not Jacob's way. And God's way waited until he finally learned some lessons about humility in the people testing with Laban and goes through this all-night wrestling match with the angel of the Lord and ends up being crippled in the process then he finally recognizes that he has to be dependent upon God, and it's only then that God blesses him. Now, Isaac had blessed him. Esau had sold him the birthright back 
uh, much earlier, but God doesn't bring him to that point until there is a change in his uh, in his spiritual nature and capacity to handle the blessing. He has to recognize God's the authority in his life, and God's plan must be done God's way and not his way. He has to learn a principle that is exhibited in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our fourth point, that our Lord demonstrated this humility in his desire to serve. Mark 10.45, humility indicates a desire to serve God. That's what Jesus Christ was doing. Mark 10.45, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, when you hear that term, Son of Man, the imagery that ought to come into your head is that of a glorious personage who was predicted in Daniel chapter um, Daniel chapter 7 to come and to destroy all the kingdoms of man and to set up the kingdom of God on the earth. The Son of Man is a glorious image from Daniel chapter 7 of this incredible personage who is going to wipe out all the kingdoms of man and establish the ultimate glorious kingdom of God on the earth. So the Son of Man is an image of someone who is in tremendous authority. But there's this juxtaposition within the sentence, this irony, this discontinuity that the Son of Man did not come to be served. Wait a minute, the Son of Man, the Jews are thinking when they're hearing this, the Son of Man is supposed to establish His kingdom and rule. But what what He's saying is the Son of Man came to be served. I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So this, again, is the definition of humility. It involves recognizing your plan and purpose, on the earth in submission to God's authority and a desire to serve. So the fifth point we see is that rather than emphasizing his sovereign authority, the second person of the Trinity de-emphasized his power, prestige, and person and became a creature in order to serve us by dying on the cross for us as our substitute. He de-emphasizes who he is for the purpose of fulfilling the Father's will. Then point six, tying it to Jacob. Jacob is demonstrating this expression of humility toward his brother Esau. He, there is genuine humility here. He's not just being fearful. He's not just bowing and scraping because he's afraid Esau is going to do something. There's been a real uh, genuine transformation in his character. Now, As we see within the passage, humility is foundational to grace orientation. I get this because of the uh, overemphasis, the fourfold statement of the noun for grace in the passage. Grace orientation means that we recognize that all that we are and all that we have is from God. And this is what Jacob expresses in the main part of of this chapter. When in humility, we recognize that all that we have and all that we are is from God. In arrogance, we think that any part of what we have and any part of who we are, is, is that's, that's what I've accomplished. That's what I've done. The emphasis is on our own achievement as opposed to what God has provided for us. 
Eighth point, humility is foundational to learning, to growing, and to loving others because humility is authority orientation. And to learn anything, you have to submit to an authority. You have to be willing to be taught, willing to learn that you're wrong, willing to think that the ideas that we have might not be correct. So there has to be a level of humility and teachability. And humility is foundational to learning, to growing spiritually, and to loving others. When we're self-absorbed, we can't love anybody because we're too busy focused on ourselves. And the ninth, then, humility, then, is foundational to forgiveness and reconciliation. In any human relationship, there has to be forgiveness and reconciliation because we're all sinners, and every one of us fails at times. Some of us fail gloriously, at times, right out in front of everybody. And there has to be forgiveness. There has to be reconciliation. And that is all modeled on the cross. And that is the picture for us, ultimately, of reconciliation and forgiveness. Now let's look at how this, all these principles work themselves out in this episode of Reconciliation. In verse 4, we see Esau ran to meet him and embraced him. Look at that. Look at that verbiage here. He ran to meet him. He embraced him. He fell on his neck. Three verbs. Ran, embraced, fell on his neck, and kissed him. Up to this point, it's all the action is what Esau did. And then we're told they wept. Both of them. You see Jacob getting involved. But the other part of the picture that we see here is that Jacob appears to be rather reserved and cautious in his attitude towards ape, uh, towards Esau in contrast to this open exuberance and enthusiasm that Esau has for, for his brother Jacob. Jacob is stiff. Uh, Esau is excited, he's open, he's free, he shows affection and genuine happiness and joy to see his brother. He hadn't seen him, his twin for 20 years. He's excited. There's no indication at all in the text that he's harboring any level of resentment towards Jacob whatsoever. Nevertheless, Jacob is cautious, careful, he's guarded, he's, he's uh, w- really unwilling to completely... Uh, entrust himself to Esau. Esau treats Jacob as a long-lost brother and a friend, and it's clear that he cares more for Jacob and the restoration of their relationship, which must have indicated that they had a had a great friendship. They, as, as brothers, they could look back on all kinds of pranks and things they did as they were kids, and and Esau is genuinely glad to to have have Jacob back. But Jacob is. A little bit hesitant, but they both weep. There's there's real emotion here. They are just thrilled to see one another again. Now Esau exhibits his interest. I want you to note that in this narrative here, it's a lot of conversation, but it's Esau who's got the initiative. He's the one asking the questions. Well, you, well who, who's everybody with you? Where have you been doing? Why don't you go with me? Jacob is the responder. He's just. He, he seems very stiff and reserved. I'm not, I, I'm not sure what's going on here, but and maybe this is a residual from years of fearful anxiety about what Esau would do to him. 
Verse 5 we read, He lifted his eyes, saw the women and children. That's Esau looking around and says, Who are all these with you? And Jacob says, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. That's our first mention of grace. And it does reveal Jacob's attitude. It's all of God. He didn't have anything to do with it. Then he begins to bring them all forward and introduces all the children, introduces the the maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, and then Leah, and finally Joseph. And, and Rachel. And then Esau speaks a second time. He says, Now, what do you mean by all this company? I mean, all those animals, the herds and the flocks, the camels and the goats and the sheep and the cattle that you sent ahead. What, what did you mean by all of that? And Jacob responds and he says, This is to find favor in the sight of the Lord. This is our Hebrew word, hen, which means favor, grace, or acceptance. Notice how he says, my Lord. He continues to treat him with uh, respect. It's a little heavy-handed, but he may not be sh- he's not really sure what, about Esau just yet. He says, this is to find favor in the sight of my Lord. It's the word for grace, that you would treat me graciously. And look at Esau's response. He's so magnanimous here. He says, I've got enough. I don't need any of this. God has blessed me richly. I have flocks and herds and cattle and everything I need. You don't need to give me all of this. And Jacob insists, No, please, if I have, if I have now found favor in your sight, so treat me uh, graciously. Again, he says this again. Deal with me in grace. And the indication here is that I, I think Jacob's got a guilt complex working in the background. That that he's he knows that he 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 may have gotten God's will but he didn't do it God's way a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong and so even though he gets the blessing he's never going to be able to fully enjoy it and appreciate it like he would have if he had not manipulated it himself and see that's where we learn the lesson is that we have to relax and trust God in his timing to give us that blessing, whatever it is, and His timing, His way, and not try to force it. Let the Lord, and then we can relax and enjoy it, and there aren't any second thoughts, and there's no guilt. I think that's his problem with Esau. Why he can't ever fully entrust himself to Esau is because he's cranking on this guilt feelings that he's going to have all along because he always knows, even if he's forgiven, even if there's reconciliation, there's still this thing in the back of his mind that he cheated his brother. So he says in verse 10, go ahead, take it, I want to find grace in your sight. And then he says, and as much as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God. And that's really where we start seeing the, the interpretive key in this whole thing is he is comparing and, and drawing a connection now between seeing Esau and meeting God face to face. And that's why when you interpret these chapters, chapter 33 has to be interpreted in light and along with chapter 32, and the wrestling scenario has to be interpreted in light of what is getting ready to take place in the reconciliation, in the meeting and reconciliation with Esau. And then in verse 11 he says, please take my blessing. And this is that Hebrew word berachah, for blessing. And here it's used for a gift. 
I'm going to bless you. We often hear people say that today. I'm going to give you a gift. That's a biblical usage of the word blessing, to give a gift. I think New American Standard translates it as a gift. Please take my gift that is brought to you. Take my blessing that is brought to you. Allow me to graciously bless you because what? Because God has dealt graciously. There's our word again. God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough. So he, that is Jacob, urged Esau, and he took it. So there's this genuine reconciliation that takes place. But even though they're reconciled and there's peace between the brothers, Jacob is never going to fully trust Esau. And it's not because Esau is out to get him anymore. It's because there's just this residual uh, guilt. So he's going to stay in the land. And then we see that that old, shrewd, conniving, uh, sin nature just sort of crops up again with, with Jacob. Esau says, now let's go with me. Notice, let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. Come with me. Go back to Sierra with me, and let's have a genuine reunion. But Jacob says, well, and he just he's disingenuous here. He just makes up an excuse for why he's not going to go home with Esau. Rather than saying, no, I need to stay in the land that God gave me, it's like he's afraid to bring up the past. He may remind Esau why he wants to, wanted to kill him. So he makes up an excuse for why he can't go back. He says, no, wait a minute, you know, the children are weak. Well, they've just gone 400 miles. can't be all that weak. And the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Make 400 miles in a little over 10 days is driving pretty hard. And so he's just making up these excuses. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I'll lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and children are able to endure until I come to my Lord in Seir. He never made it that far. Esau then said, Well, okay, let me leave some of my people with you, some of my servants who are with me. And again, Jacob uh, backs off rejects the offer. What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of the Lord. Again, we have that word. The, 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 when Moses wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this constant repetition of these grace words just stands out and wants us to understand that this is really what the, sort of the overriding issue in this whole passage is how Jacob has come to understand grace in humility but there's still problems. So Esau returned, and Jacob goes on, but he doesn't go to Seir. He goes to Sukkoth, and he built himself a house. So now he is in the land. He just barely is in the land. The word Sukkoth is from the Hebrew noun sukkah, meaning a booth or a thicket. It could be a term used for temporary shelters, used to cover animals, uh, warriors. And uh, Jonah built uh, used the... Uh, uh, the the gourd was a booth, a sukkah, for him. So it's just a temporary uh, shelter. And so he calls it sukkah because he comes and he makes these booths for his animals. He basically builds lean to, a lean-to type of barn. For you Texans out there, he puts up a pole barn. And uh, that's a sukkoth. Then he... After he has settled there, then he moves again. We don't know how long he was there. And he moves to the next town. He came safely 
to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, the promised land. Now he has returned, where he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city. Now this is sort of, as soon as you say Shechem, if this was was a musical or an opera, you would start hearing the deep bass rumble as foreshadowing of trouble. Trouble is on the horizon. And the next chapter is one of the strangest and bizarre episodes in the Old Testament. The next two chapters actually uh, combine. It's just bizarre, but God is showing just the depravity of, of Jacob's family and of the Canaanites and the next the rest of Genesis really is setting up the explanation for why Jacob's family needs to be taken to Egypt. And for the Jews who are originally reading this uh, on, on, uh, on the verge of going into the promised land, what God is showing here is what happened when they, the, the, their, their forefathers disobeyed God and refused to be separate from the Canaanites. So that's coming. So the city of Shechem, a Canaanite city. And he brought, bought a parcel of land, and he pitched his tent there from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. So he buys land. This is the only the second piece of real estate that the patriarchs owned. The other was the grave site for, uh, for uh, Abraham and Sarah. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohe Israel. He erects an altar in the land. That is a key to understanding his spiritual orientation at this stage, his devotion to God. El Elohe Israel means God, the God of Israel. Who is Israel? That is who he is, Jacob. That's his new name. So it's an indication that this passage is looking at Jacob in, in a positive sense, it's looking at his spiritual life positively. He, it ends on a positive note that he builds an altar. He's worshiping God. He's oriented to the authority of God. This is why, as I pointed out when we began this, there's debate among commentators. Some take one extreme that he's all, it's all good, and the other extreme is he's all bad. But it's a mixed bag like most of us. He's generally pressing on to maturity, recognizing grace orientation, trusting God, and shows that he's clearly uh, been humbled and he's under the authority of God. But on the other hand, he's still dealing with these problems from bad decisions in the past. Not unlike most of us, where there are bad decisions that we've made in the past, and even though there's forgiveness and even though there's reconciliation, there's still residual problems that we'll never get away from simply because of the consequences of bad decisions. There's forgiveness and restoration of fellowship with God, forgiveness and restoration with other people, but there's still problems. And here we're going to see the problems that come into the land because there's some real problems in Jacob's family. But we'll save that until I return from the promised land in a couple of weeks. Okay, let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, thank you for this time to be encouraged as we see the spiritual growth in Jacob, as we see the transformation the doctrine brings, as we move from being self-reliant and arrogant to true and genuine humility as a result of grace orientation. 
Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with these things and that we might remember that the issue is our relationship with you and to keep that as our highest priority and that that is executed through a knowledge and application of doctrine as we constantly walk by means of the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.